0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here once again with Professor Akhil Amar and some special guests. Hello, Akhil. Hey, Andy. And boy, are they special. So uh, do tell. Okay, well, we've been teasing this for a while, and we're, we're really very privileged today to have, have a distinguished tandem of uh, Professors uh, Michael Stokes Paulson and William Bode referred to as uh, Will and Mike. Even before I tell you about them, I'll tell you what they've done recently, which is they've written uh, an important article, which um, I guess it's a forthcoming article, isn't it? Um, But it's available now on SSRN and has been widely referred to and debated in the media and noted. And uh, the title there is The Sweep and Force of Section 3, of course, referring to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the to the Constitution, and quite relevant to the many trials of Donald Trump and the uh, the actual trials and the figurative trials of, of Donald Trump that are that are going on now. And actually, their article makes the case that even as we see here today, Donald Trump is ineligible to, to be president because he's disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, these two eminent and conservative scholars are saying— in writing in a leading law journal that appropriate governmental authorities should, in their official capacities, refuse to place them on the ballot in the various states. So this has gotten major attention in the New York Times and the Washington Post and on all the major news shows. Eminent scholars and public figures, uh, including Judge Luddig on the right and Lawrence Tribe on the left, have endorsed this position. As recently as today, as we record this, in an article in The Atlantic, and elsewhere. Uh, so today's episode, and hopefully in another Part 2 episode, these two scholars appear here to speak about their article and the case they've made. Um, audience, you can now hear it for yourself uh, from these authorities for the first time, because no major media, media outlet has heard directly from them. They've chosen to let their article largely speak for itself. But now that feedback and critiques have appeared. They're here to elaborate and to answer questions about their arguments. So uh, let's hear a little about them. So first, Professor Paulson. He is the uh, distinguished university chair and professor at St. Thomas University. He he received his uh, bachelor's degree from Northwestern, where he was a member of Phi Beta Kappa, and he received an MA in religion from the Yale Divinity School and a J.D. From the Yale Law School, where he was an editor of the Yale Law Journal. He then joined the Department of Justice, a criminal division honors program. He also served in the Office of Legal Counsel at one point. Later, he taught and served as a dean at the University of Minnesota Law School before coming to St. Thomas. He's published extensively in uh, law journals, including the Yale, Stanford, Chicago, NYU, and many other law reviews, law journals. And he co-authors um, a uh, casebook, the Constitution of the United States, with our other guest today, as well as with others. And he's written several other books on the Constitution, and he has many books in progress with uh, with provocative titles. Sometimes, um, okay. He's a t-
1: Andy. You left out the most important credential. When I was a law student at Yale, my roommate was Akil Lamar, and he would chase me into the bathroom late at night, continuing to argue constitutional law at 1.30 in the morning. Yes. So that's my greatest claim to fame. And my greatest credential is that I survived a year in the dorms at the Yale Law School with Akilah Mar.
0: And well, let and me tell you, to tell he, the tale. He, uh, he continues to uh, chase persons uh, into, the, into the bathroom or around the bathroom, <laughs> LBJ style. To, uh, <laughs> the Johnson to- treatment. Yeah. <laughs> And just to finish off here, uh, you know, of course, Mike, you've testified before Congress and state legislatures on numerous occasions, and your 36-page CV is filled with a variety of publications, appearances, and other contributions to the American legal and intellectual scene. So welcome to Professor Paulson, to Mike. And, uh, Glad to be here. Thank you. And now let me tell you about our other guest, uh, Professor William Bode. Uh, he's the Harry Calvin Jr. Professor of Law and the Faculty Director of the Constitutional Law Institute at the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, he also attended a Chicago undergraduate, and received a degree in mathematics, and then he received his JD from uh, Yale Law School as well, and he too was an editor of the Yale Law Journal. Um, he then clerked for uh, then-judge Michael McConnell on the U.S. Court of Appeals And then for Chief Justice John Roberts on the United States Supreme Court. Um, He, as I mentioned, is the co author of the same casebook, The Constitution of the United States. And by the way, uh, Professor McConnell is on that casebook, as well as uh, Samuel Bray. Um, He also co authored the 2022 supplement to the Hart and Wexler uh, Federal Courts book, which has been mentioned on this podcast in the past. Um, He's also the author of many, many law review articles and other publications including in the popular media, such as The Atlantic or The New York Times. He's a frequent uh, contributor to law blogs, including the uh, Valla Conspiracy and Balkanization. He served on the Biden Commission uh, on the Supreme Court. He is the editor of the Supreme Court Review, which is a prominent peer review as opposed to a student-reviewed um, journal. And he submitted numerous uh, amicus briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court as well. He also hosts a podcast, Divided argument, which appears from time to time. Um, He's at the top of his generation by a wide margin in terms of Supreme Court citations, uh, 14 at last count, and he's known for uh, coining the phrase shadow docket, as well as perhaps more importantly, writing extensively on it. So welcome, uh, Will Bode.
2: Thanks for having me. Also a former student and teaching assistant of Akilah Meyer.
0: Okay, so Akhil, what do you have to say about these two? (laughs) That you're about to hear for the first
3: time from the duo that everyone in America is talking about. And if you haven't heard the news, then you've been living under a rock. They have written a blockbuster piece with all sorts of very important consequential claims about possible ineligibility of Donald Trump to be president of the United States or hold any important public office and Everyone's talking about it. They have impeccable conservative credentials, as you've heard. They're both dear friends. One's my roommate, one's a, a former uh, assistant, um, as you've you've heard. And OCBS oh, wanted them, and NBC wanted them, and Fox, and ABC, and MSNBC, and CNN. And they said no to all of those places and more. And they said yes to us, Andy. So I'm quelling about that. And the reason they said yes to us is actually, I think that they've heard you before and they know that this is a serious podcast. These are very difficult issues. We may actually do a couple of episodes on them um, all in, but these are going to be law professors nerding out about really important constitutional issues about originalism and method and substance that have hugely important consequences. And I'll say one maybe more thing, which is these folks are not results-oriented. I try not to be results-oriented. That's true for you, Andy. Unfortunately, many, maybe even most of our colleagues in the Academy today do not separate. Unfortunately, when you actually look at their bodies of work, they don't really separate their personal views, their political views from their constitutional views uh, very much. Um, Will might be wrong. Mike might be wrong. I might be wrong. You might be wrong. But this is going to be an honest, hard-hitting conversation, a kind of a workshop-like format where we try to work through the issues together. That's what you have um, in store for you. One final thing. I had forgotten that Will is the Harry Calvin professor at University of Chicago. Just in the small world department, our audience will know we've had a bunch of episodes about my heroes and mentors, about Henry Friendly, to whom uh, actually one of the editions of Hart and Wexler is is dedicated, and and John Ely, and uh, Walter Dellinger, and Telford Taylor, and Guido Calabresi. One of my other mentors, we're going to have an episode about him, is Owen Fiss who was a dear friend of the, the late, great Marty Sherwin of Oppenheimer fame, American Prometheus fame. My mentor, one of my several mentors is Owen Fiss. His mentor was actually Harry Kaufman, whom I never met, but but he's my grand mentor, the way these things work. And, and I'd forgotten, Will, that you, you actually have a chair now that bears um, his name. So this is going to be great fun. Looking forward to it.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, guys, for being here. So, all right, let's get to the article. So, The Sweep and Force of Section 3. Let me read Section 3, because uh, many of the audience may not actually be familiar with it. So, this is part of the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment adopted in the aftermath of the Civil War. And we've talked about it many times in terms of incorporation and equal protection, birthright citizenship, privileges and immunities. We talked for a long time about another a section of, of the 14th Amendment, which has gotten little attention uh, for many years having to do with the debt, the national debt, with uh, Professor Balkan and also with Professor Prakash. Um, but today we're talking about section three, which was adopted in the aftermath of the Civil War. And when you when you hear the text of it, I think you'll understand the temporal relation to the Civil War. Um, so here it is. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress, or as an officer of the United States, or as a member of any state legislature, or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, Shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Okay, that's the entirety of Section Three. Of course, it's part of the Constitution, and so there are other parts of the Constitution that may reflect, uh, you know, and be relevant to it. But that's Section Three. Okay. Now with that, um. Here is the argument, uh, as I read it, of the 126 pages that address uh, Section Three, and of course, this article this article can't help but be uh, understood in the context of of Donald Trump and and January 6th and, and the recent events. Um, so the the final part of the uh, of the argument has you know hits that more specifically, but um, okay, so five points. First point, this section, Section 3, is alive. It's enforceable. Um, It's not a dead letter because of disuse. It hasn't been terminated by congressional amnesty actions or any other statute or law or subsequent amendment. Uh, Second, it's self-executing. It effectively produces a requirement for office that one not be disqualified under its provisions. So it doesn't require any enacting legislation or other legislation from Congress in order to, to have its effect. Or to put it another way, uh, disqualifications can take place without further action by Congress, specifically. Third, um, if there are earlier parts of the Constitution that are in conflict with this section, they're superseded in the context in which they may conflict, by Section Three, for example, uh, bills of attainder, ex post facto laws, and possibly free speech aspects of the First Amendment. By the way, some of these words are verbatim from the article, but I'm not qu- I'm not putting quotes around them, so don't uh, don't uh, get me for plagiarism there. Okay, um, the fourth point is that Section Three covers a very broad range, or a broad range, you can only do the word very, of conduct and a, con- and a broad range of officers. So it's not limited just to, um, let's say, to the Secretary of State, you know, or something like that. It has a, covers a broad range of officers and, and many conducts, not just, let's say, maybe those conducts that might be considered treason, for example. Um, and then fifth point which they make is that Donald Trump... Among probably many others, are disqualified from holding offices under the Constitution, uh, under the terms of Section three. So that's my sense of the of the points that the article tries to make as a whole. Obviously, many subpoints. So, um, Will and Mike, is that a fair uh, summary of wh- of what you have to say there? Yeah,
1: that that seems terrific. Well, I, I don't know why it took us 126 pages. when it just took you two <laughs> minutes to summarize. We must be law professors or something that we dig into every little nook and cranny of this.
0: Um, Will anything that you think is essential to add to that for you know a basic understanding of your of your argument?
2: No, no, that's the that's the core structure of the argument.
0: Okay, well. Um, then I'd like to discuss some, some aspects of it. And I'll, I'll try to refer to specific things that you say um, in, the, uh, in the article. So, you know, Akhil has said that one of the purposes and results of an originalism analysis is to reveal the big idea behind constitutional provisions. So in terms of the big idea of Section 3 you say on page four of the article where you describe the congressional thinking at the time that they passed the 14th Amendment. Here's a quote from the article. If former Confederates held the levers of federal and state government power, effective reconstruction of the political order and any hope of extending the full and equal protection of the laws to the newly freed former slaves would be at an end. Unquote. So from that, it sounds like the idea is that we don't want to have insurrectionists in office. Um, however, um, doesn't the section three I, it seems to presume that one has taken the oath or an oath under the Constitution prior to this conduct. So, so if one is in an insurrection and then runs for office without having previously taken held office and taken the oath, is one disqualified? No, okay. But is not loyalty to the Constitution the duty of every citizen, whether they previously took an oath or not? And what if this conduct took place while running for office? I mean, what if the losing candidate in a presidential election engages in these behaviors? Would they be disqualified from running again, from holding office? Presumably not. So how do we reconcile this with the overall purpose? Um, So someone who hadn't taken the oath but engaged in the same behavior would seem to present the same problem. So therefore, it would seem that the oath is somehow behind the purpose of the amendment, is somehow intrinsic to the purpose of the amendment. So how do we explain this?
1: That's a really interesting question, Andy. And and Will, if you'll let me riff on this for a little bit and then you can jump in. One of the points we make in the article about originalism is a focus on the original meaning of the words of the text that's adopted. And sometimes the text that is adopted contains a rule that goes further than the specific historical circumstances that prompted its announcement. And sometimes it goes less far. Right? It overshoots or it undershoots, but the relevant constitutional law is the rule enacted by the text. Now, as a matter of history, the concern that the Reconstruction Republicans who proposed the amendments originally thought was felt was that the former uh, Southern leadership, the slave power, the same very same people who had once held the levers of power in the federal government and in their state governments were after the war immediately trying to return to power. Right. Uh, it's like four Confederate generals, four colonels are sent to Congress by the newly partially reconstructed state governments and a bunch of former Confederate cabinet officers. And, and the one that's just really outrageous is the vice president of the Confederacy. Georgia selected him as a senator. And this, we argue rightly outraged the reconstruction congress because if you let the same people back in they're going to uh, perpetuate the same policies and so part of what they were aiming at was the power structure there was an earlier version of the this the provision that became section 3 which would have disqualified not only from office holding but from voting basically anyone who had engaged in insurrection or rebellion, it would have disenfranchised basically the whole South right after the civil war for a period of years. As they went through the drafting of this amendment, they decided to back off from that and to key the prohibition to office holding of insurrectionists or rebels and limited to people who had held office before and then violated their sworn constitutional obligation. At some point, it became a big part of what they were thinking about. These people were oath breakers, right? They had sworn an oath of loyalty to the Constitution of the United States and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against that same United States government and that same United States Constitution. In the process of working through the various drafts, even though addressed to a specific historical situation, they wrote a very specific rule, and the rule is both narrower than the historical circumstances, and and this becomes important to our argument, it's broader. They didn't say we're going to ban former Confederate officers or persons who violated their oaths in the late war, and I think that language was in an earlier draft, in the late war. They decided to viol- to adopt a general rule, a prospective rule that – not just civil war uh, traitors, but anybody who betrayed their oath to the Constitution and held an office that had required such an oath would be prohibited, and it would be prospective. And generally, it would apply in any circumstance where the rule applied. So, will I filibuster there for a little bit? Uh, anything to add or clarify or correct? No, that's so great. So, this I- is how. This is how we worked. You know, I would say something, (laughs) he would say something, and then, you know, we would go back and like try to fix what somebody else said to try and improve it and sharpen
2: it. Well, so to add a footnote, uh, you know, if you want sort of a shorthand for the big ideas, there's a great new book that just came out by, uh, or the first volume just came out by Mark Graber uh, about the 14th Amendment called Punish, Treason, Reward, Loyalty. Uh, It has a sort of summary, especially of the goals of Section two in section three which he sees as the heart of the 14th amendment and especially in the wake of you know in the wake of the war in the wake of the abolition of slavery which in tandem with the three-fifths clause will suddenly make the south have more voting power in congress unless the 14th amendment section two has taken place they're sort of confronting the new politics the post-civil war politics and thinking about how do we avoid going back to just the same old thing or the same old thing but worse Uh, and they're seeing you know seeing the same Confederate leaders into Congress really raises that specter. And so exactly as Mike said, instead of they make a choice deliberately not to try to disenfranchise the entire white South, uh, but to instead go after the ruling political class.
0: Now, of course, if you want to think about, you know, they didn't, as you said, they didn't say, you know, in the late war or something like that, they didn't limit the, the, the Section 3 to the Civil War. So if, if you're not going to limit it to the Civil War, and you're not and that's not an accident, right? In other words, they considered doing that and they didn't do it. Um, so that means they're thinking about the future also in some sense. Um, so in, in that kind of a circumstance, it seems, uh, again, this notion of whether or not you took the oath or an oath um, becomes important. So if we think about that in terms of today... Well what's the difference between people that have taken an oath and people that haven't taken an oath that might engage in, in in various you know insurrectionist activity or something like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to know at the time they're writing it what the future will hold. Uh, uh, they don't know that this is the last great civil war the country will have. Uh, it's easy to imagine there'll be more. There are you know insurrections and clan rebellions throughout the South in the years of construction and redemption. Uh, there could be things like that that again, well, one thing you mentioned that I just wanted to get to is this oath issue. And I do think there is something, there's something about taking a solemn oath to the Constitution before God and country that puts you on different footing with respect to the Constitution. You know, even at the time of the Civil War, they knew people like the Garrisonians and many others who, who maybe denied the allegiance to the Constitution because they thought the Constitution was evil. And I do think those people who have never claimed to be part of the constitutional system are differently situated and less blame, blameworthy in some sense than people who have Taken up the power that we the people have invested them with, and then tried to deploy it for evil ends. Thank
0: you.
3: So that was a brilliant point that I hadn't really understood. I haven't read the piece with the kind of care that, that Annie has un- until this moment. So this is a podcast where we talk a lot about method. Will is a professed originalist, and and so is, is Mike, so am I. And someone like Scalia said he was an originalist, but Scalia actually didn't know much history. Scalia actually was really into words. And that's perfectly okay. Um, but just you want to just know who you are. Are you a you know a word guy? And Scalia's really into words, whether they're constitutional or not. He's into grammar and um and syntax, and he he, <laughs> he writes with my friend um, Brian Garner all sorts of stuff. But he actually didn't know any history, like almost none, because actually he wasn't driven. By a kind that of, that wasn't his passion to like uh, understand um history. So Will said something really interesting. He actually you asked a specific question, like you know the oath seems to be really important, and he's actually now giving you something that you can't necessarily. The textualism is going to a- get you to ask the question, but now he's actually going to give you the larger historical context. The keyword is like the garrisonians because what's up with the oath? What's the difference between? You know, having taken an oath and breaking it and, and not having taken the oath. So one is you, you just think that's intrinsically more wrong. And a second, Mike Paulson um, argued earlier, they want to limit the scope because actually they got to get the thing enacted. And if they disqualify too many people, this is looking backwards. That's going to be a problem. This, is, You know, you're working backwards. Like we asked before, well, do you start with the sentence or something uh, and thinking about whether to convict someone or not? What you know, figuring out what the right punishment is and then what crime should be there for charge, given that the person deserves to spend five years in jail or something. What's a good five-year, you know, um, offense that we can, we can charge. So, you know, sometimes you work forward. Okay. What's the crime and then what's the punishment. Sometimes you work backwards. Well, what's the punishment. So what's the crime we should, we should charge. So Mike actually said, gee, one of their practical concerns is not sweeping too, too broadly. Cause that's going to, but, but we'll just said, here's another thing that they're actually thinking about. Many of these are anti-slavery crusaders themselves. And and they are in the system. That's why they're the senators and representatives. Um, They've taken out. They have many people that they very morally admire, the Wendell Phillipses of the world. Yesterday, I just wrote a passage about how Wendell Phillips and Charles Sumner, oh, they both went to Boston Latin together. And then they went to Harvard College together. And then they went to Harvard Law School together. And they actually are classmates. They're within a year of each other. And they hate Slavery with a passion, both of them, and maybe equally so. But Wendell Phillips actually says the Constitution is an agreement with hell. It's a covenant with death. Fie on it. I, I'm not going to take any lo- oath or loyalty. You know, I believe in a higher law. And Sumner says, oh, no, it's actually an anti-slavery document. It's not a pro-slavery document. I'm going to run for office. I'm going to be in the system. I'm going to take oaths and then try to to work within it. Um, My friend Mike Paulson is actually in his head right now thinking, ah, this is our teacher Bob Cover (laughs) talking about like different ways of thinking about an imperfect constitution. Do you argue against it? Do you try to ameliorate it? But Will knows history in a way that C. Scalia doesn't. So he just told us a really interesting thing here. Ah, they're also thinking about morally serious people who were so morally serious that they did not swear an oath that they actually didn't believe in and 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 that was admirable on their part so really interesting point
1: will Andy, can I pick a little fight with a please do um. Two things in terms of characterizing originalism. I think Justice Scalia was an originalist, and he did know history. The point that Akeel makes, and I'm just going to soften it a little bit, is that Scalia's version of originalism emphasizes words, emphasizes text. So he's looking for the original meaning of the words, as opposed to maybe, for example, historical big ideas in written large because the words might go further than the historical ideas or they might go less far. And Scalia is an originalist textualist. The other point of contention I want to make with you, Akhil, and this is just poking at you a little bit, is really you're an originalist?
3: I'm the originalist, Mike. <laughs> okay, because to be an originalist is actually to know your Shit. Mm-hmm. Textually, structurally, historically. So I disagree with you because it's not as if Scalia knew all this stuff and then said, but the text is the text and that actually Trump He didn't know it. He didn't care that much about it. He didn't spend every waking hour. You know, when he had time, actually reading primary and his- and secondary historical sources. And yes, Mike, since you and I room together, that's what I've done every damn day. And that's why I have these books. And oh, audience members, please read them because I haven't plugged them in the last thirty seconds. Yes, we have to plug these our guest are books. To books. No, we
0: have we, to plug we our will. Um, and
3: and and, um, and and America's Constitution of biography was such a good book. You know, that Michael and his son actually wrote, you know, a, a kind of a tribute to it in the same tradition, a book about the Constitution, where they walk through the Constitution, kind of start to finish in a way that, you know, I, I try to do as well. These are originalist projects there. I mean, the tradition of Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution, they are not great commentaries on the cases, for example, which would be someone like Larry Tribe's treatise or the great David Curry of the Constitution. Uh, in the Supreme Court. So yes, if you're an originalist, you believe in text, history, and structure. But I think you actually need to know a lot of history because people do things for certain reasons. And Mike and Will, what I'm writing about right now is the original originalist, the biggest originalist of 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 them all, isn't, in my view, even Hugo Black, isn't quite even Joseph Story or John Marshall the original originalist of all time he's in the hugo black tradition he's a hick from the sticks he has doesn't have a fancy educational background he as it were has a library card and that's about it and his name is abraham lincoln and he becomes president and he's a departmentalist and he takes oaths really really seriously and and as he's about to take his oath he actually says i'm about to swear you know a solemn oath in heaven and if you take oath seriously that's going to make you a departmentalist of a certain sort because your oath is to the Constitution and not to the case law. It's going to make you an originalist of a certain sort because your oath is to the text of the Constitution, you see, this Constitution. And as, as you know, conventionally understood, Lincoln is an astonishing originalist. Read his Cooper Union address. He's he, He becomes president, in my view, this is the argument I'm making in in the new book, because he's actually the greatest originalist of the century. Otherwise, he's a nobody from nowhere who never did nothing, but he's a lawyer who really believes in the Constitution and will study its history because you can read the text in an hour. Okay, but he wants to know the backdrop. And then that includes, Will, the early gloss. He's someone who pays a lot of attention to liquidation, early gloss, early settlement, as opposed to the idea that the text and its entire meaning is utterly fixed at the moment of ratification.
0: So Mike wants to jump in, but I just want to just for our listeners that aren't familiar with the term liquidation, even though we've used it in other uh, podcasts um, in this article, Will and Mike take Uh, A lot of time to look at the meanings of things like insurrection and rebellion and aid and comfort and things like that at the time of of the Civil War and other times, too. And one of the things they look at is, well, what did they do right after the 14th Amendment was passed? You know, how did they uh, implement these terms right after they you know, purported to legislate on them. Well, you know, how did they then implement that legislation? They also look at what, you know, they did beforehand and, can, you know, contemporaneously with it. But um, so that's a form of liquidation. How was the 14th Amendment, you know, uh, carried out, I guess, in early, in early practice? Mm-hmm. Um, so, Mike, you wanted to jump in?
1: Well, Akhil and I might disagree as to certain people, whether they're originals or not, but we agree big time that Abraham Lincoln is probably the most important constitutional interpreter uh, of the U.S. Constitution of all time, in addition to all of his other attributes, you know, great leader, great politician, uh, great moral figure. He was, I I have argued with Luke, my son, in this co-written book that we uh, published about uh, nine years ago now.
0: What's the name Um,
1: of the book? Oh, it's called... Very simply, the Constitution, colon, an introduction. And it's available from basic books. Yeah, and we need some more sales so that we can do the updated edition because things have happened between 2015 and 2025. And so we're looking to clear out the old inventory and go into new. But I want to make a point of important methodological agreement. Lincoln emphasizes the words of the text. It's very important to him the historical original meaning of the words, how they would have been understood by the generation and the people that adopted them. And very tellingly, he emphasizes the deep structural logic of the document, and it's how the pieces fit together, like his arguments against the validity of secession is basically a John Marshall-like structural argument to reasoning from the nature of the thing and the overall logic of the Constitution. So Akhil and I share a great love of Abraham Lincoln. and in, in, in this paper with Will, we draw heavily on Lincoln's words and actions as very influential in forming the understanding of the broad terms insurrection or rebellion and what constituted engaging it. But that gets ahead of where you are in the article. No, uh, okay. Andy, so I'll back off.
0: It's there. okay, because what we're talking about here is, um, you know, you, you've kind of drawn back to, and as I drove back, I suppose, when I was talking about what's the big idea, um, but you're, you're drawing back to sort of first principles of analysis. And then we have you know the constitution. You know this this clause in the constitution, which we're we're looking at, and then you can actually go down to the more specific when you start to look at it, in terms of of uh, you know how it applies in, in Donald Trump's case. But uh, I suppose an intermediate level of analysis would be is something you refer to um, in the article, uh, which is Akeel's uh, method of intratextualism. Where you look at how certain phrases are used or or certain ideas appear um, in various places in the Constitution. Now, a moment ago we were talking about oaths, and so I'd like to go back to that in terms of the, some perhaps an intertextual approach to to oaths. So oaths appear, you know, in several places in the Constitution, um, and. Um, so does, by the way, the phrase uh, aid and comfort, another phrase that we might want to talk about. But in one place, um, the, uh, the Constitution refers to, uh, so, for, so for example, in, in Article 3, Section 3, it refers to enemies of the United States, okay, when we talk about um, you know, aid and comfort. And then in, uh, in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it refers to enemies of the Constitution, so, is there a difference now, let's note again that office holders are taking an oath to the Constitution here, right in the in the context of the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, presumably, you know ordinary citizens have a duty you know to the United States, as I mentioned earlier, that somehow differs from this duty to the Constitution, perhaps um, And so does that matter? Um, but also does does this relate at all to the presidential oath of office? which speaks of a pledge to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, as opposed to the United States itself. Do you make anything of this difference between oaths to the United States, oaths to the Constitution? Um, do you, is this anything? I actually think there's a puzzle there.
2: Uh, and you said that the Section 3 refers to enemies of the Constitution, but there's an ambiguity there that, frankly, Mike and I couldn't figure out. Uh, and I don't, So I don't know that it matters. <laughs> Uh, which is, it says enemies thereof. And you go back, what is thereof? And it's, uh, have engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the same. So the thereof and the same. And then that refers to people who've taken an oath to support the constitution of the United States. But it's unclear whether they're referring back to enemies of the constitution of the United States or just to the United States. And the parallelism with the treason clause might make you think it's the United States. But, you know, other parts of the structure of the clause might make you think it's the constitution. I, I'm not sure... We haven't found any reason yet that that anything hinges on it. I I do think it's important to note, though, and this is this is quite important, the way that section three does kind of diverge from the treason clause. So aid or comfort and enemies are phrases from the treason clause. But the treason clause is pretty well uh, understood to mean sort of foreign enemies, enemies in the in the law of war sense. uh, And it was important to kind of interpret it narrowly like that. Uh, But it was very clear by the time of the 14th Amendment that, of course, enemies, be domestic enemies foreign and domestic is a phrase that comes from the the civil war precedents, and so we think the best reading of the enemies clause is to refer to the people who have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the constitution that the enemies that section three itself enumerates as a, a form of sort of intra intra-intra-textualism the clause itself is kind of making sense of itself
3: this is so cool i know this is way nerdier than some of the audience you know, might have bargained for because they want to hear Trump, Trump, Trump. And we're probably going to do a second episode. It's all going to be about Trump, 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 but, but, but we're serious. We're a That's why they didn't want to do MSNBC because they couldn't talk about any of the real issues. Will, here's, what's amazing about what you just said. Andy and I recapitulated quite independently, exactly. That conversation that you and Mike had. So Andy said, you know, it's um, enemies of the Constitution. And I actually said, well, maybe it could be. It says thereof enemies of the United States. I'm not sure what turns on it, but I'm not sure what the thereof refers to. And look at Article three. And there it's really about the United States. But on the other hand, if this is about violating your oath and your oath is to the Constitution, you know, then I understand why you would look at it just and say it's, it's you know, enemies of the Constitution. I understand why other people would look at it and say, oh, it's enemies of the United States. I'm not even sure why it's different. But my gosh, we did exactly the same thing, quite independent. And here's why. Because we're actually just trying to get it Right. And it's not about Donald Trump and whether we're for him or against him, whether Republicans or Democrats or never Trumpers. We're just trying to get the Constitution right, try to figure out what the big idea is, what his words actually do say and don't say. So, Andy, is is this not amazing? Because we went around and around and around on just this issue, probably for like a good 45 minutes, an hour, all told, all in, in probably five different conversations.
0: Yeah, I do think, though, that that you're right. I mean, and maybe that means that we're nerds all, all together, or maybe it means that there actually is something there. If we're both, if we're, if we're coming up with this, if we're, our attention is being drawn to it. And by the way, though, I think it's a, a real stretch to say that thereof means anything other than referring to the Constitution of the United States, because otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, I think that the Constitution of the United States is what they're supporting, right? I mean, it says to support the Constitution of the United States. So you can't really separate United States from that phrase. The only other time that the words United States appear in, the, in, the, in this section is when it refers to an officer of the United States, but then it also talks about a, sta- a member of a, of a state legislature, a member of Congress, or of any state. So it can't possibly refer only to United States in that context. So the only thing left for it to refer to is the Constitution. Um, in, in my
2: opinion. <clears throat> although if you zoom out to the 14th amendment as a whole, right. 14th amendment section one starts with the United States, persons born in the United States, citizens, of the United States, you know, it's, you, some people would say, this is kind of the moment at which the, the constitution really goes from being about the States to being about the now in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we're just moving from the topic of membership in the United States in section one, you know, representation in the United States in section two. Loyalty to the United States in Section 3. I, mean, I i don't know a strong view about the, about the phraseology either, but I think you can. You can. And, and,
3: and, and, well, here's one thing. None of us is sure why it might matter. So this is not, mm-hmm. again, a results-oriented thing <laughs> working backwards. Okay, we got to nail this, you know, Donald Trump or whomever. We're actually first just trying to figure out what it is that they're saying and why.
2: I was just going to say, you know, it took us a long time, obviously, to to work on this article. uh, And for a lot of the time we were working on it, I was not sure what the answers to some of these questions were. Um, You know, it it took a lot of historical evidence about insurrections for me to be convinced that something like January 6th was an insurrection in the constitutional sense, which I, I think it was. But I didn't know that when we started writing it.
3: And 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 audience, th- this is the reason that they wanted to come on this podcast because these are what s- this is what serious scholars or ju- who actually believe in the Constitution originalism. You know, I actually believe that. And, and our audience knows I have, I have a pretty high opinion of myself, but, but <laughs> I think the Constitution is so much smarter than any one individual person. So, you know, I actually want to know what it means and, and, and why, you know, because the, the draft persons are working through this too, and they chose this rather than that. And we can learn a lot by taking seriously the words, the structure, the historical context. Yes.
0: I guess that uh, if I were to make a closing comment on it, I would say that that um, we kind of have come to some agreement that oaths matter. Okay, and um, so we have people. We're all that, nodding our heads here. Yeah, so we have yes. people that have taken the oaths are are a different group of people than people that haven't taken oaths for the purposes of Section Three. And one of the differences when you take an oath is that the oaths here are to the Constitution. So that you that when you take an oath to the Constitution, that itself is drawing a distinction between you and other people. So everyone has a duty to the United States, but people that take oaths have special duties to the Constitution of the United States. And that might be related to questions of whether you've, you know, you actually can participate in the democracy of the united states from an elective point of view if you have been an enemy of the constitution specifically as opposed to the united states generally so that's that was andy's argument in our back
3: and forth and damn i thought it was a good one this is ladies and gentlemen in the audience you just remember andy Lipka has spent not a single day of his life you know as as a student or professor or you know in in a law school and that's a pretty darn nice, elegant argument, it seems to me, uh, Mike and Will.
1: Indeed. It's good, Andy, that you haven't been corrupted by a Yale Law School education like the others <laughs> of us <those> have.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. Well, let's let's move on to some other areas here. And, you know, again, these might seem esoteric, but I'm trying to get to some some fundamental things also. So um And I promise
3: audience we're gonna to get to Trump. We really are. It might be actually parts two of this. So let's actually, you know, proceed
0: carefully here because this matters. Now on page seven, you know, of the of the uh article, you're talking about the idea that the amendments are um you know the constitution has somewhat of a chronological quality once it's amended. Um, and that the the amendments as, amendments, as they take place, they supersede previous amendments. Repealing prohibition supersedes, you know, the, the implementation of prohibition, for example. Um, it would be kind of odd if they were both valid at the same time, you know. Um, <laughs> but, um, okay. So, and in particular, you're talking about First Amendment questions here. And you say, just a simple quote, Section 3 supersedes the First Amendment, to the extent of any true conflict. Okay, so that makes sense, I think, um, you know, in terms of what we just said. But when you write this, you also seem quite worried about it. You're saying, well, you know, this might be be a problem, but this is the way it is. So we have to, you know, uh, whether we like it or not, this is the way it is. So what are some of the dangers, you know, that you see that makes you worried uh, in this particular aspect of it? And do you think there's anything that can be done short of another amendment, you know, to address the dangers that you see? Perhaps it's worthwhile to identify them if there is something that one might do, you know, prophylactically. Mike?
1: Uh, Andy, that's a great question. And this is kind of a peek behind the curtain moment. The relationship of Section 3 to the First Amendment was an issue where we really wrestled with it and thought about it a lot. And I would have to say that I am a First Amendment liberal, and I believe Will is too. And our inclinations were that the First Amendment is like an absolute limitation on the uh, Section 3's meaning. But the more we thought about it, we we came up with what we think the right answer is, is, is that. You start with the principle that a subsequent enacted part of the Constitution can amend what has gone before and can change it. Amendments amend and they can change things. So to the extent of any true conflict, the First Amendment would be superseded as to the meanings of insurrection and rebellion and these sorts of things. Now, that's troubling to us because... As one of our critics has said, you know, what happens if this power, this meaning of the Constitution is placed in the wrong hands? And, and we, we are pretty candid about that. That is a danger. We think that if the, the right answer is the right answer, but you don't like it. That you still go with the right answer, that the remedy for prospective abuse of a constitutional provision is to remedy the abuse. and You don't distort the actual meaning of the Constitution. So we thought that the first step is to harmonize the first amendment and section 3 to the extent they can be harmonized. And there's a lot of harmonization, right? First of all, the first amendment does not reach every it does not protect every expression or or verbal statement. It does not shield conspiracy or solicitation to a crime or incitement to violence or materials support for criminal or illegal activity as liberal as we are in the first amendment its protections are not absolute by the same token insurrection or rebellion does not reach very much in the way of pure speech right so there isn't very much of a zone of tension between the two but we say to the extent there is a conflict or a tension you go with the meaning of the later enacted provision. The First Amendment does not negate Section 3. But as you read Section 3, you realize that its meaning is informed by some backdrop principles. And uh, and they are probably slightly less aggressively pro-free speech than in the modern era. But there's a significant degree of overlap. Will, if I said it about right...
2: I think so. I mean, look—it's not a coincidence that the one, you know, major scenario applying Section Three between Reconstruction and 2021 was to Victor Berger, uh, basically a socialist newspaper editor in Congress, whose exclusion, I think we we say in the paper, probably went too far, not because of the First Amendment, uh, although you know the, what he was doing would be seen as practice speech now, but because of a sort of overzealous interpretation of insurrection and rebellion. So I do think the the worry, of course, is that. Is that you can have a third red scare where you say, well, gosh, if Donald Trump is disqualified under Section 3, then anybody who voted for Donald Trump should be disqualified under Section 3 for giving aid or comfort to, you know, an insurrectionist under Section 3. And then if those people seize power, they'll say, actually, anybody who tried to bar us from power was engaged in a rebellion against the Constitution, so you should be barred under Section 3 you know, that's obviously no way to run a civilized country, but I think part of the mistake it, people make is in assuming that the first amendment is the only source of these kinds of principles. They say, Oh, you know, I learned a bunch of free speech law, free speech case law in you know law school. We've either got, we've either got the Brandenburg test or uh, it's carte blanche, but you know, you have to take all the versions of the constitution seriously and look at what is insurrection rebellion and engaging in giving aid and comfort.
0: well, So, okay. And yeah, and you mentioned, so Mike, you were talking about, you know, in directions of definitions of insurrection and rebellion. And now, Will, you're talking about aid aid or comfort as, you know, so these are different areas where the first amendment may may come into play. I think the, in particular, uh, you know, aid aid or comfort can, can be, I I think is more likely perhaps to go into areas of, of speech. Um, So, Let me give you something that might be sort of in between here. It may not be a First Amendment question per se, but I want to follow the logic uh, of some of what you say. Um, So um, on page seven, uh, you say, here's a quote, it falls to us to fulfill our duties to, you know, section three in brackets. Okay. Um, These include duties of legislative bodies, state and federal election officials, executive officers, and perhaps others to take up the Constitution, including Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and wield it faithfully and forcefully against its enemies, unquote. Okay, so this speaks then, I think, of an affirmative duty to enforce Section 3. And what is that duty? It's a duty to the Constitution, after all. Um, So presumably... Uh, Those who commit acts that merit disqualification under Section 3 are enemies to the Constitution. That's essentially the plain meaning of of, of Section 3. So does that mean that to fail in this duty to disqualify those whose disqualification (laughs) is mandated by Section (laughs) 3 would itself give aid or comfort to the enemies of the Constitution that that we just identified and therefore (laughs) subject those officials to fail to enforce it if they had taken oaths? To Section Three sanctions, so I'm thinking of the Republican debate last week, when the candidates are asked to raise their hand if they would. This is not exactly on point, but to to support Donald Trump even if he's convicted, okay, in the, in these various trials. So that, that I mean, I could see a scenario where they're asked that same question, you know, about about Section Three or something like that. Um, if you, you know, um, so do you do you feel so? Is that a the logical uh, conclusion to, to your reasoning here?
1: Andy, can I offer a softer version of what you just proposed? By the <clears> way, <throat> I should
0: say to our audience that everyone is laughing here. Is
1: yeah. <laughs> no, we're um, laughing
3: because it's such a clever point that only rarely do our best law students even begin to approximate. And to repeat, Andy, we're kind of astonished that, that someone, you know, without you know, formal legal education would just so quickly say, ah, cause this is how it spirals out of control. If actually you have a duty it's self-executing to, to exclude these folks who, um, uh, violated their, their oaths and you don't do that. Does that make you yourself a kind of oath breaker such that, that you that actually then have to resign immediately? Cause you, you know, it's it, uh, the, I was telling Andy, it's like when Descartes, you know, walks into, um, we <laughs> Descartes, at um, a a a French restaurant, and the waiter says, "Will Monsieur have, you know, um, a consommé?" And he says, "I think not." Poof, you know. So, so the minute you actually don't do your duty, actually, y- y- you you should be disqualified. And um, that that's that's why it's a it's a brilliant question, Andy. It really is. That's why we're we're all smiling,
1: and we do make this point. In passing and talking about the duty of all officers to faithfully enforce the constitution. And this is in part two or section two of the article. We say that the obligation of sec that section three is itself directly enacted as a constitutional rule. You don't need any implementing legislation. It just is and it is operative right away. It then becomes the obligation of everyone whose duties turn on on the application of Section 3 to some area of their governmental responsibility to faithfully imply it. And we do make the point that those who have sworn an oath to support the Constitution, legislators, state secretaries of state, most state election boards, courts, obviously, have a duty to faithfully carry out the Constitution. Now, we're not saying that if they don't agree with us, they're insurrectionists or rebels, but we're saying at one point, you can't dodge your responsibility that to fail to take this provision of the constitution seriously because you don't like it or because you think it should be handled another way or because it doesn't comport with your understanding of politics or political necessity, is a form of gentle betrayal of the Constitution. You're not fulfilling your oath, and you know that becomes important to our ultimate conclusion that state that a variety of officials, state election officials, state uh, secretaries of the state, state judges, federal judges, of course have an obligation to carry out the meaning of section three and apply it whether they, whether they like it or not it's part of the constitution we shouldn't just ignore it
2: so on, on the technicalities of aid and comfort i, I thought thought this a lot in the hypo of you know what about a member of congress who voted against the second confiscation act let's say uh, are they giving aid or comfort to the enemy uh, by you know making it harder to harder to levy the war or what about andrew johnson um who does a lot of things that from the point of view of the radical republicans are you know giving aid and comfort to the enemy and and so far as i can tell at a minimum you know the aid and comfort prong would be less so than the engage in rebellion prong has an intent uh, assumption to it somewhat like the assumptions in criminal liability so somebody who did that out of a, a you know good faith policy disagreement or a you know somehow failing to be persuaded by a 126 page larger article you know just said look I, I don't buy it i'm i think chase is more persuasive i don't think they have the intent necessary to satisfy aid and comfort uh the you know the really troubling hypo which sort of the more deliberate betrayal of the oath is imagine somebody who said yep this seems right donald trump seems disqualified but uh who cares you know he's gonna make america great again and i'm gonna find some way to put him on the ballot come hell or high water it's so crazy to think that person is sort of in league with the insurrectionists maybe not
0: that's why i brought up the point about the people raising their hands you know at the at the debate i mean here mm-hmm. it's kind of you know it's, it's not the same that was the sort of the equivalent of a pardon you know is what they were saying like you know even if the jury finds him guilty i'm going to you know i'm going to support him whatever but here you know if you're you're not you're not in a position really i mean i don't consider it a pardon power if you are in a position where you have an obligation to do something and you choose not to do it, that's not really a, you know, a a pardon. Um, and, uh, so, so here, and you say this, like you say on page 67, mere passive acquiescence resigned acceptance, silence or inaction is not typically enough to have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. But then you go on to say an exception to this limitation might exist where a person possesses an affirmative duty to speak or act. I think intrinsic in that is the knowledge that they have that duty. Um, and so that they can have the formal duty by occupying the office, but then they also have the duty if they believe that the, you know, a certain finding in sec- of section three applies, that they, that right. Trump is guilty of this, but they're, as you say, they're just not going to do it because they think they'd rather have him as president than not or something like that. Well-
2: Although we, there's an important caveat, which I think is, again, an example of just drawing the, the historical lesson from the Civil War, and especially from Abraham Lincoln, which is that there's no mistake of insurrection defense to Section 3. It is not a defense to say, I thought the South had a right to secede. I thought the North was usurping the Constitution. And the South was the rightful inheritor of the Constitution. Many people in the Confederacy really did believe that, I think. But their lack of awareness about their the secession did not did not exempt them. Uh, and you know, for all I know, some of the people involved in the the insurrection on January sixth really believed they were stopping the steal. Right? They really believed they were the they were the good guys in the scenario. Uh, but just as it was not a defense for the people who fought for the Confederacy, it's not a defense to people who fought for Donald Trump.
0: You say in the article that uh, if people believe that Trump actually won, that's not a defense because he didn't win. You know that, that if the yeah. same actions were taken, even a footnote. That if the, if the same, same, I'm showing off that I actually did read the article here, that, that, <sighs> that you know, if, uh, unlike law students, <laughs> that, that the, uh, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the, if the Democrats did the same thing or something like that, and if the actual winner engaged in, in these behaviors, that they would not necessarily be, you know, equally coupled. So there's the facts who won, then there's your belief as to who won. And you're saying that those are really quite different. So uh, this goes into, I think this is very important when we start, to, when we talk about Trump in particular next, maybe on maybe in a subsequent episode, as to whether or not you think it's relevant that he believed many of the crazy things that, that he was saying or not. And, of course, the, there's been a lot of findings, you know, in January 6th and elsewhere that that the, it would be impossible for him to believe that he was told this, you know, things like that. But, uh So, but that is that a distinction you also draw when you're talking about Trump's knowledge here?
2: I I think so. I think the point would be what matters. The true facts matter. Um, So the and there's no mistake of insurrection defense section three. So I don't think it matters for Trump's disqualification if he really believed he was stopping the steal. Again, I I don't know whether he really believed it or not. But but for that part, I don't don't think that matters. And I'm glad you found that footnote. I think this is one of the things we. We wrestled with, and frankly, I find it one of the scariest notes in the article, because obviously it's a question people ask is, you know, what if the shoe's on the other foot? What, you know, um, and it has to be right that the truth matters, right? That the truth about the world matters to the constitution. But of course, we live in a world where many people don't agree on what the true facts are. And so saying that the true facts matter, you know, is not going to be self-enforcing. There are going to be millions of people who think the truth is Donald Trump won the election.
0: For those of you who are lawyers and judges and admitted to the bar in any state, you probably know by now that this episode is accredited for continuing legal education, directly in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and by reciprocity elsewhere, by going to podcast.njsba.com and entering the code I'm about to announce. The code for this episode is POLITY. That's not case-sensitive, Polity, P-O-L-I-T-Y. Thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. Okay. Now, I think one of the main points in your article is that, you know, the text matters and um, that in many ways, um, you know, the Section 3 applies regardless of how inconvenient, you know, it makes things.
3: If the folks in the... 1860s are really worried about you know one part of america um, and they took up arms against uh, the united states and now they want back in and once they get back in they can do all sorts of damage um, even if they're not a majority a national majority a guy like preston brooks if he if you, if you let him back in he's dead um, but, but but he he can assault another member of 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 congress as preston brooks did caned charles sumner into a um, bloody pr- practically unconsciousness and and Sumner was out for three years because this you know one crazy uh person was allowed into congress you know and whether you think that's I- I'm, I'm not saying it but whether you think it's marjorie taylor green or lauren bro but you could say you know um We've uh, in the whole, in order to protect itself, is going to have some pretty strict rules about letting a wacko from one part, you know, into uh, national deliberative councils. Okay, and so we're we're going to really insist that on disqualification. But is that the same test? Textually, it is. But is it the same test you should apply if now we're talking about someone who actually? Um, it's, it's got the support not of some weird little district, uh, outlier district, but actually of the nation as a whole. Textually, yes, it applies, but but in application, do you do you have the same? Do you apply it with the same, you know, zealousness and strictness? Because now you're you're disenfranchising, so to speak, you know, a much. Um, greater number you know you don't quite have the whole protecting itself against the wacko part you know structural concern
2: so this is also related to the intuition of sort of the undemocratic nature of section three and the question of how is ellis to be about it the more we trust democracy right so the the south is not going to be able to foist president jefferson davis on us by themselves they don't have enough electoral votes to do that now, one point is practical, which is again, you can win uh, the presidency with a smaller sliver of electoral votes if the if if things are fra- fractured the right way. You can ask Abraham Lincoln about that. Um, so they are aware that that you know they're not inevitably in a system where there's going to be one majority vote winner all the time. Uh, you can imagine a world where the North splits into the Radical Republicans and the Copperheads and some moderates, and they split the vote three ways, and Jefferson Davis gets a unified ticket. I don't think that's as fanciful uh, as it might sound today. Another point is structural. Notice that the Constitution does not, in general, adopt this attitude about qualifications. Right? When you look compare qualifications of the House, the Senate, and the presidency, the Constitution gets more and more stringent about them. Right? How many years there should be a citizen? Smallest number for the House, a large number for the Senate, uh, forever for the President. So the Constitution does not elsewhere... Uh, in Article One, Article Two, adopt the view of, oh, we can be less worried about it for the presidency because we'll we'll all have to sign off on it. Um, so I guess I'm inclined not not to think so. And it was even uh, after the 14th Amendment was enacted, there were people talking about the possibility of president Jefferson Davis in some of the debates in Congress about whether to enact the amnesty legislation and who to exclude. One of the one of the specters people raised is is Jeff Davis going to be president? Um, they seem to think that the that the 14th Amendment was what was stopping that now. And that, you know, that was one of the questions at stake. It, it is a funny feature of presidential elections that, you know, they're largely committed to states by article two. Uh, and then, you know, I'm, I know you've talked about that a lot in the context of, of some of the other elections clause questions and Bush versus Gore and so on. Uh, and so that is a, a sort of a counterintuitive side effect of the structure of the constitution. Although of course a question like this could also go to the Supreme court. So it's a practical matter, If you had some states saying, you know, we think Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and some states saying, no, we think he's not. It's easy to imagine the Supreme Court would resolve the legal question.
3: So actually, you know, we've been really nerding out with all the technicalities, but I do think it's just helpful just zooming out a little bit, big picture, explaining, especially to the less law trained members of our audience. Um, your basic point, when you say it's self-executing, which Andy summarized at the beginning, that means actually election officials who decide, for example, whether you're 35 years old and therefore eligible to be on the ballot, whether you're a citizen, whether you're a resident, they have to decide whether you actually clear the 14th Amendment Section 3 bar. That's your view, and this seems actually very strong to me. Now, presumably what Will just said is, okay, but that's just the first step. You don't have to wait for a court decision. You don't have to wait for Congress to pass a law. That's what self-executing means. But whatever decision an election official makes, oh, they're going to get sued perhaps if they say Trump can't be on the ballot – presumably Trump could sue them, take them to court. If they say Trump can be on the ballot, presumably Chris Christie or some other um, uh, candidate who is on the ballot or maybe even a voter could bring a lawsuit. And so either way, um, they make a decision in the first instance. They don't have to wait for Congress. They don't have to wait for a court decision. But once they do act, there may be a court case that materializes. That's, I think, what your your position is. One question I want to ask you guys, honestly, is – presumably it gets to the Supreme court at some point, you know, most likely have I got that basically right about how things are going to get litigated. And honestly, if your life depended on it, what do you (laughs) think the Supreme court, you know, would say when these issues um, get to the Supreme court?
1: Uh, These are terrific questions, Akhil. And I think that uh, a lot of people have raised the question of what actually happens? How does this actually get played out and, and, and on the ground? And I think you have it exactly right, that state election officials have to make a decision as to whether or not Trump is to be included on the ballot and whatever authority they have to judge qualifications As a matter of state law, they applied this qualification, the same as 35 years of age, right? We can't vote for Barack Obama or George W. Bush. That's a limitation on democracy. If they sought to be on the ballot, they'd have to be excluded. The same sort of principle applies to Section 3. I think you're also right that whatever the state officials do... They're going to be sued by someone on the other side. There are a variety of procedural ways this could come up. It's more likely to come up in state courts in a certain procedural posture than in federal courts. If the state officials exclude from the ballot, there might be a federal lawsuit by Trump to try and get it. But the stakes of the issue are so great and the importance of the issue is so clear that I think this would move fairly quickly through the courts. There might be conflicting lower court decisions, and it would get up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, this, so, so I've answered mm-hmm. the easy part of the question. Will, why don't you answer the hard part of the question? <laughs> what do you think the nine justices would actually do? I, it, and it's interesting. While I give him time to think about that, that formed no part of our analysis, right? As we're thinking about these issues, we're trying to think what is the correct answer? What is the objective original meaning of the Constitution with a certain naivete, assuming that, of course, when this gets to the Supreme Court, the justices will read our an article okay. and be persuaded as to the meaning of the Constitution. But as a predictive matter. And then once will we'll
3: get. Really? Yeah. And once we'll give this answer, I'm going to have a quick follow up.
2: OK, uh, I don't know. Uh, the, short answer. The, the I am sure that every justice will have the first instinct of, can't we duck this somehow? Um, <laughs> uh, and I'll just say, I think when you look at it, it's very hard to figure out how to duck it. You know, the standard, one of the standard tools for ducking it is to say it's a political question. But to say it's a political question is to say that the political officials, the secretaries of state, get to make the decision, which would have the consequence of letting them exclude them from the ballots. So that won't feel like ducking it. And you want to say something like, well, maybe it's the opposite of a political question. It's a it's a it's a question only the courts can decide. But we're the Supreme Court, so we'd have to decide it. So then you end up where Chief Justice Chase was in Griffin's case, where you try to say, well, maybe nobody can do anything until Congress does something. But I think it's really hard to endorse that reasoning with a straight face if you look at it. Um, that's part of why we spend so much time on that case is because it's a major precedent. And, and I think it's just very hard to imagine the court really being able to endorse that. And then I, I I don't know what they would do. I mean, I, I hope they would look at it, you know, clear eyed. I hope they would ask themselves sort of the three questions in the right order. Was the election stolen? No. Was January 6th an insurrection in light of that? Yes. Did Donald Trump engage in it? Yes. And the third might be the hardest question. I could imagine them saying the election was not stolen. January 6th is an insurrection. But this like engage in aid or comfort question is the hardest one I, I could imagine. but But I'm really not sure.
3: And that, and that's what we're going to talk about more in the next episode, you know, very facts specifically. But the follow-up involves two wrinkles. Before you follow One.
0: up, Akil, I just want to finish this question for a second, which is what is the court – in that kind of a scenario, what would the Supreme Court's job be to decide? Are they supposed to decide whether – um, whether the state secretary of state, for argument's sake, was acting in their proper in their capacity properly. Uh, in other words, did they have the ability to r- make that ruling, or are they going to judge if their ruling was right or wrong?
2: This is where what we call the procedural posture becomes very important. And because there are so many different fora and procedures and standards of review, it, it may matter a lot exactly what the you know how the question gets to the court and what the factual record is and what standard of review it's asked to apply. But mm-hmm. but they'll in some way be asked. Is what happened below, you know, correct or not?
0: Right. Sorry, Akil. so
3: ahead. so the the wrinkles are the following. Um, I'll start just two words: Lisa Murkowski. Or let me just say a different way: write-ins. Even if you're excluded from the ballot, you know, on election day, you know, people can spell Trump. And related to that, I think my position is the ultimate judge is actually not the supreme court it's the congress is and it's not the vice president you know pence or kamala harris it's the joint session of congress on the january 6th equivalent that actually has to judge you know, whether what has happened below is, is proper, you know, whether these actually, um, electors do reflect what the people of the, of each of these states actually did or didn't do on election day. And I don't think you can just make stuff up because being a judge doesn't mean you, you can call a ball a strike or a strike a ball, but it does mean you're the home plate umpire. Your thoughts on th- those combination of wrinkles, the write in question and how from a certain point of view, even the Supreme Court is actually not the final, final judge. It's it's actually Congress on uh, the day that the um, uh, electoral votes are opened in open Congress.
2: Okay. So first, I agree on the right-in question. Uh, and an important piece of historical context, readers may not know, is when the 14th Amendment was written, we didn't really have ballots in the way we now think of them. The idea of the government written Ballot, where the government would control who was on it, it's an innovation of the later 19th century, the Australian ballot. Correct. So it's surely not the case that the 14th Amendment was originally supposed to be enforced only through ballot access. Um, so there's lots of ways to imagine that that the ballot decision alone will not be will not be conclusive. Mm. I'm not as sure I agree with you, Akil, about Congress. This gets into two important questions about the Electoral Count Act, or now the Electoral Count Reform Act. One is whether it's constitutional. Um, which a number of very smart scholars, including uh, one of Mike Paulson's frequent co-authors, Vasan Kesavan, have written about and questioned whether Congress has the power to allocate to itself some of those vote-counting powers. Uh, and the other is even if it is constitutional, what the phrase "regularly given" means. Um, So that w- it would have to happen that a, a, a sufficiently large majority under the Electoral Count Reform Act concludes that votes given for a disqualified president are not regularly given. Uh, that, that would be the kind of question. This did happen uh, when Horace Greeley died um, after the presidential election. And there were debates about quite, quite you know, fierce debates of whether to count votes for a dead person, which is another way you can be disqualified when you're elected to office. We are currently not persuaded that Congress has the power to throw out votes on se- Section 3 grounds. We think their job is to count them, even if they're not correct. But, but the constitution then clearly states uh that the, the president won't take office you know it uses these the, the 20th amendment refers to the failure of the person who gets the most electoral votes to qualify for office right. anticipating the possible scenario that you have a big pile of electoral votes for somebody who can't take the office at which point the vice president takes office
3: and who decides whether that um, a person who had the most electoral votes as counted on January 6th um, yeah. is or in fact is not eligible?
1: Well, Akil, the very difficulty of that question shows why it will become vital for the court to step in and render a decision well in advance of that situation. If it gets to January 6th and you have members of Congress purporting to reject some electoral votes and accept others, you, you've got a true constitutional crisis and a constitutional train wreck. The way to avoid that is for state officials to take actions in good conscience to enforce Section 3 and then for the validity of the legal argument to be tested and judged in court, and for the courts to confront it and resolve it. I do have confidence that if the Supreme Court ruled that wills in my argument is correct and that the correct understanding of Section 3 is that it disqualifies Trump from office, I do have confidence that that would essentially end it, that there wouldn't be resistance to it. You know, if a more or less unified Supreme Court uniting the positions of conservative originalists and and more liberal living Constitution uh, proponents agreed generally that the answer is section three should be taken seriously this is an actual disqualification of the constitution trump is actually disqualified i think that would solve it
3: and and, and that's why i was asking and you punted it to will and who said i don't know back to you I uh, do you have I mean, just, you know, who knows? And uh, but but what your sense of the odds would be, you know, what what, what do you think? You see, he said, I'm going to let my friend Will answer. <laughs> what, do, what do you think the <clears throat> likelihood is that the United States Supreme Court, whether it's five to four or nine, oh, whether it's a a, a cross partisan coalition mm-hmm. or or not? What do you think the actually the odds are of the Supreme Court saying we agree with Paulson and Bode?
1: Well, Akil, I'm I'm a terrible prognosticator of looking into the crystal ball and figuring out what the uh, Supreme Court will do. In part, I have to confess, I've been an academic long enough that I'm kind of blinded by the naivete of the assumption that in the end, they'll do the correct decision, that they'll interpret it the the way we've laid it out. If I were a betting man, and and I am, I, I guess I would wager that in the end, the originalist arguments that Will and I make is likely to persuade the originalist block on the court and that the non-originalist, sort of more liberal side of the court would actually agree with the conclusion, if not always with the methodological premises. And I think it is entirely possible that the Supreme Court could rule nine to nothing against the eligibility of Trump to be president that might just be the wishful thinking of someone who's so immersed in the in the text and the structure and the history that, that that I assume that that's the way it would come out you know and I'm not blind things go wrong and everything like that. But I would like to have that confidence that the Supreme Court would follow the original meaning of the Constitution and and fulfill it, despite the fact that it would be controversial to do.
3: And we're going to, and I know Annie wants to get in, and so this is just one quick uh, thing either today or the next time we do want to talk about our mutual friend and he's really all our friends um, Michael McConnell's critique and he fancies himself and, and rightly so an, an, an originalist he has some reservations about all of this which go in part to uh, maybe even a predictive judgment about what a Sam Alito might think a Clarence Thomas might think um, a Neil Gorsuch might think or what have you so, so we want to make sure that we do justice to his critique as well as to
0: your points well i just wanted to say in regard to what mike said about um that if the court ruled um that the uh country would probably accept it or congress would probably accept it i mean we do at least have for what it's worth you know i guess i would call it good the good faith shown by you know al gore and his camp after you know the bush versus gore decision which was not unanimous which was not well received in terms of its uh you know logic and 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 other, you know, it was perceived, perhaps widely perceived, as partisan, and yet it was accepted, and you know, and you know, the court has ruled, and and they moved on. So you know, and uh, so the fact that that took place can only be help. I mean, it may not be decisive, but it could only help in terms of the, the likelihood of the country accepting, uh, you know, round two going the other way. All right. Well, so, you know, and we've been talking a little bit about what how this might play out. Um, and you know this distinguished commentator, uh, Professor McConnell, Judge McConnell, I guess, um, former judge, uh, has has weighed in on the Vol Conspiracy blog, which, well, you you contribute to frequently, I know.
3: So our audience knows who we're talking about. Former Judge Professor Michael McConnell is, uh, by acclamation, uh, perhaps the preeminent uh, conservative. Originalist scholar in, in America today. He's a co author with Will. And Mike on a case book. he's Will's mentor. Will was a law clerk, as you mentioned at the beginning. Andy, just reminding our audience, not just for the chief justice, um, but before that, the year before that, for J- then Judge McConnell. He, he's a personal friend of mine, and we hold him in very high regard, all of us. Um, and, and so does All America. He is the single most cited person, I think, or one of the two mo- most cited active scholars, by the United States Supreme Court, and he has a different view. And that's why we're taking him very, very seriously, because he's earned that right, it seems to me.
0: Okay, so in this piece, and again, this is not a law review article, it's just a blog post, so um, he didn't have 126 pages to make his, his case. Um, but here here are the two major points that I garnered from it, and perhaps you you, read, you saw others. Um, the first one, I, I, in my colloquial way, I said that it uh, – that he's saying that the section three creates a mess and therefore should be interpreted in the narrowest way possible. And so here's some, uh, a quote from, from the uh, blog post. He says, I, I worry that this approach could empower partisans to seek disqualification every time a politician supports or speaks in support of the objectives of a political riot. Imagine how bad actors will use this theory If that is what section three necessarily means, we have to live with it. But in my opinion, we should seek the narrowest, most precise, least susceptible to abuse definition that is consistent with history and precedent. In The absence of actual engagement in actual insurrection, judged as such by competent authorities, we should allow the American people to vote for the candidates of their choice. So a couple things in there, this kind of like let democracy do its thing, And also he seems to not take like Aiden Comfort too seriously there. But anyway, um, your thoughts on this, uh, this critique.
1: As Akil said, Michael uh, McConnell is a luminary. I've known him since 1984 when I was still a law student and a summer clerk in the solicitor general's office. And he was a young assistant solicitor general. And we've been co-belligerents in many cases. And, and, you know, he he, I, I love him as a brother. He's wrong on this. Let me just sort of make what I think are the, the sufficient points. What is driving his concern are basically political considerations and policy implications rather than legal analysis. He invokes that this would be dangerous if used in, by the wrong hands or used in the wrong way. Um, I think it's Joseph story who originally said in his treatise that the possible abuse of a power is not an argument that doesn't exist as a legal matter. It's an argument against its abuse. And I think that some of these hypotheticals Michael posits are just once we address in the article and say this, this is a different situation. They're kind of straw man arguments. Now, he's concerned that this could go wrong. At one point, I think he asked a rhetorical question, what could go wrong? And his implication is that this is a bad thing. You know, this would be dangerous. We shouldn't unleash the Constitution on the political system. Now, I'll let Will speak for himself, but I think our orientation is different. I think it is that... If the Constitution means what the Constitution means, you don't tame it or defang it because you don't like some of its implications, right? You follow the logic of the constitutional provision where it leads you, and you adhere to it rigorously. Um, the approach that Michael uses is, is actually reminiscent of this case we severely criticized by Chief Justice Sam M. Chase. Where the, where Chase argues that the policy inconveniences of the case and the, 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 how much it would upset the existing st- structure of the Southern political order is a reason not to adhere to the actual literal language of the Constitution. I think I joked with uh, Will as we were looking at Michael's comments that that Michael is is kind of the the ghost of Salmon Chase past. He is letting his concerns about other situations, his concerns about the policy implications, uh, drive his constitutional interpretation. He's sort of looking at the Perceived undesirability from a certain standpoint of the results as a reason. I think he's pretty explicit to read the constitution differently. Can we read it more narrowly? Can we, can we defang it and make it less potent uh, than it is? And, And I just think that's the fundamentally wrong approach. You don't pick the conclusion first. And then try to craft reasoning that gets you to the conclusion you desire. You adopt what you think is the correct reasoning and follow the logic of that where it actually leads.
2: Yeah, I, I very much agree with Mike, especially about the sort of the methodological divide. I guess this reveals, at least on this question. Um, I also, you know, nothing has given me greater pause than hearing Michael McConnell's skepticism and, about this argument. N- nothing else before has given me greater pause than, than that. But still... Uh, you know, I think I think Mike's right about the way to approach this question and, and to follow it where it leads. You know, we have a sentence uh, in the conclusion of the of the paper uh, that's sort of designed to respond to this instinct that says disqualifying candidates and officials from office is not something to be done lightly. But Section three was not enacted lightly. You know, it's true. It's a big deal, right? The, the to disqualify people who otherwise would get majority support is a big deal. That's the thing that that democracies don't like to have to do. Uh, but the framers of the 14th Amendment realized they had to do it uh, and they put it in the Constitution. And so part of what we're doing is just trying to, to make sense of the, the consequences of that. And I am struck on the sort of the joke about about Chase. You know, this is kind of the story of the 14th Amendment over and over again. The 14th Amendment contains a lot of big, important provisions in Section 1, Section 5, and over and over again in the Supreme Court during Reconstruction, in the Supreme Court in the 20th century. You know, you see people saying, Boy, do we really have to do this? You know, incorporate the Bill of Rights? Really? Uh, recognize the privileges or immunities of citizens? Really? Uh, let Congress enforce the constitutional amendment? Really? Uh, and you see this instinct of, of well, it, maybe, you know, maybe we don't have to. Maybe nobody will make us. Uh, and I guess I, I worry we're seeing that again in Section 3.
3: And don't forget the words, the right to vote in Section 2. First time those words appear in the Constitution.
2: Yeah, and never taken seriously uh or almost never um.
0: okay, and I think that you know i actually when i when I read all this i i that's why I sort of was stressing i think in part some of this business about the damage to democracy that can be done by some of these people, and that um you say well it's it's the democratic instinct, let the people choose regardless of of but but some perhaps uh you know a represented a, a advised the Senate on the impeachment of a judge that acquired his office, um, you know, through illegal means. And you might say, well, they voted for him, you know, but, you know, they voted for him under damaged circumstances. So, you know, in one way to think about the, this section of the 14th Amendment is that it, it offers a protection for democracy that the people themselves are unable to offer.
2: And, and I mean, I w- I will say there's an irony. It's not just about Trump. There's an irony about making the democracy argument in the context of the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election, right? It'd be one thing to say, we don't need section three. We have elections in this country. We just accept the results of the elections. We don't need section three, but I don't think we can take for granted that we have elections in this country and that we honor the results of those elections. Mm-hmm. And so it seems a little rich to say that you get to both attempt to overthrow the results of an election. And then when people try to enforce the rules against you, uh, Complain that people are not holding off elections.
0: Right. I mean, I think that that that's my point. Although much more, much better exactly expressed. Okay. Very good, Akhil. Your thoughts on this? Because I know you have you have some sense about you know sort of uh, interpreting things narrowly in in certain contexts.
3: Well, I think this has been a great seminar on method, um, and uh, a great history lesson about what actually serious people had to think about as they tried to put the country back together after uh, a great civil war testing, whether this nation or any nation um, so conceived and and so dedicated could long endure. Okay. So this was a spectacular history lesson and a great seminar on originalism, constitutional method. Um, Mike gave us an amazing prediction that it's possible. The Supreme court might agree with (laughs) them. Nine Oh on the, ineligibility of Donald J. Trump to be president of the United States going forward. That's a big headline going forward. Here's what we have. And we've we've engaged the the most thoughtful critic um, and most important thus thus far, at least in some of his big points, uh, Judge Professor Michael McConnell. So we have more on McConnell. And frankly, we have to talk more about the application of all of this to Trump about whether he really engaged in it. What exactly is the threshold for an insurrection? What's aid? And I bet we talked a little bit about enemies and enemies of whom, but much more to actually, because if we're, if, if Donald Trump is going to be, you know, ineligible. Wow. I think we owe our audience and the country more discussion of some of the specific details of intent and other things as applied to Trump. And I think, uh, and talk more about uh, another McConnell critique. And that's
0: what part two will be, I propose. So, Mike Paulson, Will Bode, thank you so much. This was really, really great. And uh, if I had to read a 126 page law review article, that's the one I wanted to read. So, thank you very much. (laughs)
1: Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Sakil.
0: Thank you. Okay, great.